Over the hills. Over the church. Situations were different. But the principles are the same. You shall not kill an unborn child. Or murder a newborn infant. The common thing. And the situation in Rome was that a Roman patrician, the father, the head of that household, would have the right to toss his newly born children out into the street and let them die. And here comes this ragamuffin group that were friends of the word that handed on to their successors what they had received and that formulates itself here in the teaching, the Didache. And the Didache says to Christians, yeah, you can't do that. Should be intuitive. Looking at the world and the dignity of the human person, it's not always. Or look at the first century teaching on the Eucharist. In chapter 9, in regard to the Eucharist, you shall offer the Eucharist thus first in connection with the cup. We give thee thanks, O Lord, through the holy vine of David thy son, which thou hast made known to us through Jesus thy son. To thee be glory forever. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the wine we offer you. Fruit of the vine and work of human hands. It will become our spiritual dream. Blessed be God forever. The very similar words that come to us in chapter 9 from this first century document, we said this morning at Mass. And in connection with the breaking of the bread. We give thee thanks, our Father, for the life and knowledge which thou hast revealed through Jesus thy Son. To thee be glory forever. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received this bread we offer you. Fruit of the earth, work of human hands. It will become for us spiritual food. Never go. <laughs> Blessed be God forever. The Dedicate mentions something we see emerge even in the New Testament. The three degrees of holy orders. You have bishops, even in the New Testament, episcopoi, overseers. And you have priests, presbyters, and you have deacons. You have that in the Acts of the Apostles. And you have it in the Didache. Mention bishops and deacons. St. Ignatius of Antioch, who we'll meet shortly, mention bishops, priests, and deacons. Now we're in the second century. Becomes a significant thing to provide lists of bishops and how they go back to the apostles, particularly in Rome. And so we have the golden chain 
here's St. Irenaeus. In the late second century, he says, but since it would be very long in such a volume as this to enumerate the successions of all the churches, to give you the list of bishops of everywhere, I can go by pointing out the tradition which that very great, oldest, and well-known church founded and established at Rome by those two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, received from the apostles, and its faith known among men, which comes to us through the succession of bishops. This is 2nd century. St. Irenaeus, who says, every church needs to be in union with this one. For every church must be in harmony with this church because of its outstanding preeminence, that is, the faithful from everywhere, since the apostolic tradition is preserved in it by those from everywhere. Remember the commission at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, Go, preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the apostles do. They go to the ends of the earth. There's a church historian that reflects on the significance or the appropriateness that Thomas, the doubter, is one of those that sent furthest away. <laughs> Not as punishment. <laughs> but he was the one, right, that we presume responded to the Lord's words. Thomas, come here. Put your hand in my side. See the wounds in my hands. And that great image, another painting of Caravaggio, of Thomas going in there and putting his hand inside. That would be unnerving. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> but you would have a hard time doubting after that. And so the fittingness is the one who had this very concrete, tactile proof of the resurrection. When he goes into India and preaches the gospel far away from his brothers, far away from what he was familiar with, continued to hand on the gospel, and we suspect would go back to that moment. Is this real? Yeah. <laughs> Very real. <laughs> Such that in the 16th century, when Western European explorers ended up on the coast of India, they were Thomas Christians. They were still handing on the faith as much as they could. How fascinating would that be? You show up on the shores of a place you can can't mention anyone's been before, and they're still holding on to the apostolic faith. Shoot. That's awesome. You just tweak a few things, right? You know? <laughs> <coughs> then he lists the bishops, the successors of Peter. And they're names that come to us in our canon. Why this Cletus, Clement, Sixtus, Cornelius, and Cyprian is another one. But Irenaeus not only can, but points out that it's an important thing that he can, 
lists the names of the bishops from his own day back to Peter. Oh, sorry. I figured that they go out to all the world. Well, if you're the head of the apostles, there's definitely a unique role that Peter plays in relationship with the other disciples, the other apostles. The one that always stands up and speaks when the Lord asks a question. He definitely wasn't merit based, because every time he opened the mouth, he'd say something stupid. <laughs> but he's the head of the apostles, and if you get told to go to the ends of the earth, preach to all nations, there is a place you can go that's really the center of the nations, but in which you could preach to them all. We know they have to get out of Jerusalem. If you ever wondered how the church gets from Jerusalem to Rome? Well, in the course of the Lord's preaching, he told them this stuff. He's like, within a generation, all that you see is going to be destroyed. There won't be left a stone on a stone. Right? That's what happens. In 70 AD, the Romans come down and they fly in Jerusalem. No Christians died in the sack of Jerusalem. Why? God protected them by telling them to get out of there. They trained on inside knowledge. They're like, yeah, when you see the signs, you gotta dodge. <laughs> and so when they saw the signs, they left. And the head of the apostles, Peter, he goes to the center of the nations. And by going to Rome, he preaches to all the nations. And you can read people complain about all the different people that are in Rome and all these different, you know, sort of, uh, it could be applied today. People complaining about people they don't think belong there. Oh, it happens in Rome. But Peter went to Rome and he preached to the nations. We know that he ends up in Rome in part because his letter. One of his letters says, I'm writing to you from Babylon. She who is at Babylon, meaning the church, Babylon. Where is that? What is that? Well, in the book of Revelation, John explains to us Babylon. He says, she sits on seven hills. He says, she's dressed in purple. He says, she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs. That's Rome. Rome sits on seven hills. Purple is the color of the emperor. Under Nero, the first persecution, she was drunk with the blood of the martyrs. So let's look at more apostolic succession pieces here. So we have Irenaeus list all these things. We have Clement, the fourth pope, who lived during the time that some of the apostles reigned. He writes a letter that speaks of the precious blood of Christ which they received. Ignatius of Antioch takes us into the second century. This 
is a small t kind of bias tradition. I don't know, we have no way of knowing this, but this is said by some, so I say it to you. <laughs> this tradition that he was the child that Jesus called and sat on his knee. Said you gotta become like a little child. He definitely knows John the Evangelist. He says as much in his letters. He writes to another bishop, Polycarp. And then Ignatius, this is confusing, Ignatius was appointed bishop of Antioch by Peter. So the imposition of hands from Peter to Ignatius and Peter, as he's spent time in Antioch and was there for a, a little while, as he left eventually on his way to Rome, he establishes Ignatius to be Bishop of Antioch in his stead. Seven letters to communities that Paul had written to. And dies in Rome by being fed to whatever wild beasts were on hand at the time. Usually he's pictured as being consumed by a lion. All of them were uh, martyrs. What's that? All of them were martyrs. Were killed. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, Clement. I think most of the early ones all were. Ignatius definitely was. Polycarp definitely was. <clears throat> Polycarp can speak of how he heard John the Evangelist, John the Apostle, preach and describe his goings and comings. Oh, that's Irenaeus. And he's burned at the stake as a martyr. And in the account of his death, we're told that they attributed, uh, they held his remains as precious stones. The first account of relics that we have. In terms of being written, we keep track of Peter's remains. Right? What else do I have here for you? St. Irenaeus. Right? They get this golden chain. You get the apostles who knew the word, they were friends with the word, they hand on the word, and that's what they received, uh, their successors received, that's what they handed on uh, to their successors, that's what they handed on ultimately then to us. Here's saying, here it is, I can describe the place where blessed Polycarp sat and talked. His goings and comings, the character of his life, his personal appearance, his addresses to crowded congregations. I remember how he spoke of his discussions with John. And with the others who had seen the Lord. How he repeated their words from memory. And how the things that he had heard them say about the Lord, his miracles and his teachings, things that he heard direct from the eyewitnesses of the word of life. That's what was proclaimed by Polycarp. So you get this notion, right, of Peter, of Ignatius, of Polycarp, of Irenaeus. And they go back, and they're making this refrain again and again. That refrain which we had from John's uh, letter. Concerning the word of life. The word. 
I can describe to you where Polycarp sat and talked. I can describe to you how he went in, how he came out, his character of life, his personal appearance, his addresses to crowded congregations. I remember how he spoke. He would get up and speak of his relationship with the apostles, with John and the others who had seen the Lord. We're now 200 years removed, well, going on 200 years removed. We're on a little more than 100 years. And how the things that he had heard them say about the Lord, his miracles and teachings, that's what he has handed on. His ear direct from the eyewitnesses of the word of life. That's what we're, we're proclaiming to us, and that's what we proclaim to you. Yes. Were Irenaeus and Polycarp contemporaries? Irenaeus goes a little later. Oh. But yes. He's telling us he can describe what he heard from Polycarp. Well, I misunderstood earlier. I thought Polycarp came after Irenaeus, but it was not. No, I'm sorry. I quoted. So Irenaeus, uh, as he lives, he dies probably in 202. He makes it into the 3rd century. But it's Irenaeus. We began with Irenaeus because he's the one that talks about the importance of Rome and being able to tie things back to the apostle Peter. And gives us the list of Peter's successors, the first popes. It, it carries up through his own day. So in the third century, or the beginnings of the third century, Irenaeus can recount to others the unbroken line of tradition that goes back to Peter. And says that every church needs to be in union with this church. And says that we could do this in every church that is tied back to the apostles. But that would take forever. And so let's just do it for this most important one. The place of Peter and Paul. The head of the apostles and the church's greatest preacher. I, I see in the, in, the name, in the language when it says it should be repeated the word of memory is another testimony against the soul and scriptura. Exactly, yeah. You got tradition right there. Yeah. The day right after breaking the bread, someone stands up. Maybe it's not an apostle. Maybe it's Polycarp. And he speaks about what he had heard from the apostles, about what they had heard from the word. And that's what he handed up. Things he heard derived from the eyewitnesses of the word of life. I'm just, I'm trying to convey how excited I get at this continuity of contact with the word. It's a very strange word, not just written, not just spoken, but a person that you can have contact with, that you can come to know, that you can see, that you can have fellowship with. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Okay, now that sounds like a word. Which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's what John writes in his first letter. It's what Irenaeus writes almost 200 years later. Concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. Made flesh. And we saw it. We testify to it. And we proclaim it to you. The eternal life, the life, the word, which was with the Father. 
and was made manifest to us, which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, so that you may have fellowship. Because our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's the fellowship that we offer to you. Yes? So, last month you mentioned and talked about the magisterium. Mm -hmm. So, would this be the beginnings of the magisterium? Sure, sure. So, the magisterium, especially, uh, you know, as things crystallize, is that teaching office of the church. And um, made up of the hierarchy of which the first bishops and the apostles certainly are members. Right? Yeah. This teaching service. And maybe this is as good a time as any. I get, what's up? When, uh, when we, wait, let's see here, how do I want to get at this? When we talk, sometimes we'll talk about the church. And what we'll mean, maybe more, even more directly, is not so much the church as the bishops, <laughs> which are not the church. Um, they're members of the church. They're members of this teaching service, this teaching office of the church. But they're not the whole church, right? And so the church says Acts, and what we really mean maybe is that the bishop said Acts, or that the bishops in union with the Holy Father said Acts. And, and then I, I would get down to myself, or like, correct myself, and be like, well, maybe I should be more precise with my language. The church is obviously bigger than the bishops. Glory be to God for that so many times. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not wrong to use that church in this sense, when we talk about the church's teaching. Because even though it comes down to us through the, the hierarchical structure of the church, even though it comes down to us through the teaching service, the service that different members of the church render to the rest of us, and it is a service, a service of witness, right? They do speak with the authority of Christ, for sure, the head, but in consultation with the body. And so what they say is representative of what the church thinks, at least understood in all of its, like, vastness. Right? So when we say the church says this, in fact, even if we're meaning that we've got something that's in the magisterial documents of a particular pope, He's witnessing to what, in fact, the spouse of Christ has said from the beginning. The church says this. And so, I think it's also healthy for us, when we say, oh, the church says this, to have in mind a whole, like, expanse of members of the body. And this gets played out practically before the Holy Father, Blessed Pope Pius IX, declared infallibly the Immaculate Conception in 1854. Right? The 59. I think 54. He sent out letters to all the folks who lay faithful, asking whether or not this was a good time to proclaim this doctrine. 
And so when he made that, even though this is a definitive act of the Holy Father, something infallibly said, he was speaking on behalf of the church. And so while it's true to say the church, meaning like, well, blessed Pope Pius IX, it's also true to say the church, meaning the entire body of Christ, declares this truth, that from the moment of her conception, in view of the merits of Christ, Mary was, by the singular grace, preserved from all sin of original sin. Ooh, the spouse of Christ that speaks with his voice teaches clearly about a truth necessary for our salvation. Right? And the church does this. Represented there in her head, the visible head on earth, the vicar of Christ, but who is speaking on behalf of the whole body. Anyhow, it's not wrong to say the church says X. And we can, you know, maybe mean as the teaching service or the magisterium, but we could stretch it out a little bit and see how when the magisterium speaks, it's witnessing as to what the whole church believes. There's this beautiful line, and maybe at the break I'll turn it up and then show it to you. Thomas More. Maybe we know Thomas More. He's a counter-reformation saint. Um, the situation was uh, Henry VIII in England and sent around uh, a letter uh, asking people to sign an oath of supremacy saying that he was the head of the church in England, not the Pope in Rome. And he was declaring himself the head of the church in England so that he could uh, declare his own marriage to his uh, mistress, Anne Boleyn, a valid marriage. Or even more to the point, declare his first marriage with Catherine of Aragon invalid. The Pope wouldn't do it. So he's like, well, I'm head of the church in England and I'll do it myself. And sent this letter of the Oath of Supremacy around to all of the big to-dos in England at the time. And really, all but two signed it. Bishops, priests, everybody's Catholic, mind you. They signed it. The only two that didn't. One was a bishop, Bishop John Fisher. One bishop, out of all the bishops in England. Refused to sign. There was an elder statesman cardinal that refused to sign, but he died of uh, natural causes uh, way before it became much of an issue. And left John Fisher alone. Well, John Fisher met the same end as Thomas More, who was the other person who refused to sign. Both did so in totally in keeping with their vocation. John Fisher proclaimed, No, I won't sign it, and here's why. Thomas More just refused to sign it, but didn't say why. He had family to protect. He thought that maybe by keeping his silence, maybe they'd let him live in peace. There's a great movie about this called Man for All Seasons. Anyhow, during the course of his trial, surrounded by all these ecclesiastical figures, theologians and bishops alike, who had all signed the Soviet Supremacy, and maybe not because they thought it was right, but maybe because they thought it would blow over. Little did they know, and I think it would be difficult to see at the time, that their moment of compromise would permanently alter uh, the appearances of the body of Christ in that country. 
But they say, Thomas, Thomas, look around. All of these folks in this room, we've all signed it. Like, what's your, like, what's your problem? Why can't you go with us? And Thomas, in this beautiful phrase, he says, if the reality of the church is so material as your lordships think, I don't see why that should change my opinion. And he goes on, he says, although it may not be the case in this room, if we add up all of the people of Christendom from around the world, their number is far the greater who agree with me. So if it is as material as you think, you know, lordships, and like, look at all these people, you know, Thomas, we're all against you. You should go with us. He's like, look at that material. We brought in all the bishops and all the theologians, all the, the faithful of Christendom. They are not fewer who are of my mind, he says. But if we expand it to the realities of the church, to include it every time, in every space, with all the angels, well then by far, like you're the ones in the minority, and you should be embarrassed. Right? And they beheaded him. <laughs> He's a martyr. He's more pray for us. But you get this sense of this reality of the church. And how concrete it was, this golden chain that ties us to the word of life. Whether we're reading John, or Irenaeus, or Thomas Aquinas, or Thomas More, or John Henry Newman, or you and me. That we have communion, we have fellowship with the word of life. The same communion, the same fellowship that that original band of friends had with the word of life. They talk about the breaking of the bread. And this would be really fun just to show you how in every page of the New Testament the Eucharist is somehow present. We won't do that. Instead, we'll just point out what the breaking of the bread is. In particular, through one of my favorite passages, the road to Emmaus. Take a look at Luke 24. Right, because this is the one we go to 20 after and we come back to 30 past. 